in some churches, would it? Less rock and roll. <sighs> All right, let us go ahead and get started this morning. And if you would, open your Bibles to Luke, the 20th chapter, the 27th verse. And I'll show you why we start there in just a minute. Luke chapter 20 and verse 27, we are going to begin a verse-by-verse verse of the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse is the, the prophetic sermon that Jesus gave only to four of his disciples the week of the cross, and he is telling them about things to come. They kept saying, uh, when are you going to set up your kingdom? When are you going to set up your kingdom? And so he took them up the mountain and gave them information about when the kingdom, when his kingdom would be established, the millennial kingdom actually. So he is going to give them that information and we're going to go through some of the information he gives beforehand because it's important to the context because part of the problems of the last generation of the church age which is defined in this uh, Olivet Discourse. When are you coming back? When are you coming back? And he gives the sign of his return. And so we're going to go through it a verse at a time. Oftentimes we go through and read it, and uh, we're, uh, we just miss the point. This is going to be done in uh, harmony. Huh? We good? This one's going to be done uh, in quadraphonic sound. I guess you could say, because we're going to pull Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John together in the process. We're going to look at what all of them have to say, because they're parallel passages uh, that, that basically help explain one another. It gives us a broader picture rather than just reading one. We're going to study this at, at the same time, all four Gospels, and we're going to pull this all together. So, obviously it requires our thinking caps to be put on. Actually, what it requires is a connection with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, particularly the Holy Spirit, who is a revealer of who Christ is. You'll notice that the pages are a lot more than the normal handout. Um, I guess you could say a small book, and not quite, but uh, you only have four pages that go with this particular one, and in part is because... Uh, uh, pretty well decided I'm going to write out the verses that go with the verse in Luke I'm going to write those out so you can follow right along as we go along you'll see how these interconnect rather than just trying to listen uh, to the verses as I refer to them so anyway hopefully this will help and it will be make this clearer and we'll see why that certain conclusions are reached as we go through it but again it requires uh, connection connection with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Pray that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher. So let us get ready. Let us pray. Father, we're so blessed and privileged to be able to come together. And Father, thank you for permitting us to live in the time in which we live. Father, there are a lot of things that are difficult to look at, but your word has prepared us for that. Your word has prepared us for the future, and Father, your word has prepared us for these last days before uh, the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I pray that we would be all the more prepared uh, by studying your word, being able to, uh, to understand it, retain it, 
be able to use it wisely so we may properly evaluate what's going on in the world and so that we may see once again what your what your word is laid out for us so father we pray that you'll nourish our souls with this piece of your word in jesus name amen well the life of christ and first we start with the introduction of the olivet discourse there are several different things the lord taught the week of the cross and it preceded the actual discourse on the mount of olives they serve to establish the context of the prophetic discourse they include five things and this is where we're going to start he's going to start with a marriage puzzle and this marriage puzzle is um, you've heard it before this guy dies and the sadducees bringing this question this guy dies and he's been married seven times has no children who's uh, or this woman's married seven different brothers who is she going to who's going to be the husband in the eternal state and all this sort of stuff so anyway we're going to take a look at the marriage puzzle and uh, this is going to teach really what happens when people have knowledge without understanding that's the principle that's going to run through this. We have a world, ever learning, never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. That verse is in 2 Timothy 3, also in a prophecy of the last days. We're told in Daniel chapter 12 that many will come and go and knowledge will increase. So it's kind of a picture of the last days that knowledge is going to increase dramatically, but people's understanding is not going to accompany it. They're not going to have a clue. They're not going to be able to distinguish worldviews. They're not going to be able to, to fight the evil one. They don't, don't even know that there is an evil one, some of them. But this is going to be a picture of knowledge without understanding. The second one is going to be the greatest commandment. That's the main point of life. The greatest commandment. He was asked a question. What are the greatest commandments? The Jews used to argue about that all the time. And his answer was very revealing. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you shall love your neighbors yourself. Those are the two great commandments. On these hinge the whole law and the prophets. And so that is a context to the Olivet Discourse. Why? Because in the tribulation time and as knowledge increases and understanding decreases that's going to be how people can end up so dramatically deceived during the tribulation to follow a devil by the name of the antichrist to follow an absolute devil a deceiver everything possible why would they do that because they have a lot of knowledge and uh, it just struck me that Probably the Antichrist is going to claim that he is a product of science. He's a product of science, so you might as well follow him. And after all, science has become a god, so he proclaims himself to be a god in the temple. So it, it kind of makes sense. He'll figure out a way to claim that he's a product of science. And after all, you've got to follow the science. And then the nature of the Messiah. Oh, this is a tough one. How can he call... This is the Lord addressing Psalm 110.1. How can David call him Lord and he be David's son? How to answer the tough questions. How to see that sometimes it's not either or, it's both. That's one thing I find left out of a lot of theology. When they do theology in a lot of seminaries, <clears throat> one of the hermeneutics that they teach is that, that there's only one interpretation per verse. 
not multiple interpretations that are right. There's one correct interpretation per verse. And I don't know if you should say perverse too quickly or not, because that's often what happens is that interpretations become perverse instead of interpreting perverse. But what they have done is they take an either-or position when the one interpretation can be both. And the Lord's teaching that right now. So it's a improper, it's a correct hermeneutical principle. It's improperly applied whenever things are forced to such a point that they, that they don't recognize that the answer could be both. And then we have true leadership. And this is the attitude of a, a bond servant. Matthew 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And so he's going to talk about that because what's going to happen in the tribulation? We think hypocrisy is bad now on this side of it. What happens whenever you pull the Christians out of the United States, even though they have such little influence on anything anymore? What is going to happen when you pull Christianity out of the United States? Evil is going to, to reach a level never before imagined. Now, <clears throat> these topics will establish not just problems applicable to the first century, but also problems in the centuries that are going to follow, and that's us. So when Jesus is talking, these things apply directly to the first century without question. But when he moves into this prophetic discourse, these are things that are just going to intensify over the course of the church age. Now, he starts with this marriage puzzle. The marriage puzzle is Luke 20, 27, and it will run from 20, verse 27 to 40. And you might say, why Luke? Well, if you, if you go back to study the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Luke opens up in the first five verses. He tells you that his objective is to get a chronology to the life of Christ. None of the others tell you that. And they have different topics arranged in different ways that are not necessarily in chronological order. So if you take the only one that claims a chronological authority is Luke. So if you use Luke as your chronological authority, then you see how the other ones fit. Matthew, Mark, and John. And that's how I think the uh, four Gospels should be uh, interpreted and should be handled. So you, you have to take them, I think, in quadraphonic sound. Look at all four of them at the same time. There's some good books out there that arrange them. Some of them do a, a real good job. A.T. Robertson, one of the old Bible scholars, arranged one uh, long over 100 years ago. And um, uh, several other uh, places have done one as well called The Harmony of the Gospels. They're pretty easy to find. And right now they're pretty cheap in paperback because nobody wants paperback or hardback books. They want all these electronic things. But... I like stuff I can lay out and see, and uh, my eyes see real paper better than the uh, screen. Now, verse 27, and you'll see in parenthesis here, Matthew 22, 23, and you'll see that ampersand sign, the and sign, Mark 12, 18. Now, when I use that ampersand, that and sign, it means that these are parallel passages. Okay. If I use a semicolon, 
it is distinguishing between a chapter and a verse, sometimes within the same verse or with a book. But this and sign means that these are parallel passages with uh, the passage under consideration. In verse 27, it says, Now there came to him some of the Sadducees, parenthesis, who say there is no resurrection. Okay? Little piece of information. I love these little pieces that the gospel writers put in because we didn't live in that time frame and we need help and at times understanding the significance. Now, the Sadducees are the liberal wing of Judaism. Their name was probably derived from Zadok, the high priest under David, and Zadok, the word Zadok in the Hebrew means righteous. So they viewed themselves as righteous, the Sadducees. Their theology, important stuff here. They denied the resurrection of the body and the existence of angels and spirits. Angels are actually mentioned 33 times in the Pentateuch. Okay? Now why is it important to note that they're mentioned 33 times in the Pentateuch? Because you'll see down there in point D, they only accepted the Pentateuch. They didn't accept any of the prophets, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, any of the, the Isaiah, Jeremiah. They didn't accept any of the prophets. Now, <clears throat> they sought to be ceremonially exact, and they were legalists. And it's interesting how some people have such viewpoints that they are liberal in their theology, but they are ceremonially exact. They're legalists in the process. How can a liberal be a legalist? Okay, that really doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but that's what they were. And, you know, it's kind of like today, <laughs> even. How can you be a liberal and be a legalist? Yet liberals establish their own agenda, which means that if you don't agree with me, you're wrong. So... <clears throat> They were behind the Hellenizers, or they were, uh, they were behind the Hellenizers. Now, the Hellenizers, these are the, the Jews that wanted to join forces and be assimilated into the Greco-Roman Empire. That was the Hellenizers. So, these are the liberals who were globalists. Because what was the Greco-Roman Empire seeking to do? Own the world. That's what they were trying to do. They had spread out to uh, cover a large portion of the world by the first century. They weren't done yet in their conquest. And uh, these people were behind the Hellenizers. So they had joined forces with the globalistic viewpoint of the Greco-Roman society. That's who they were. They only accepted the Pentateuch, which tells us also they're narrow-minded. Now, how do you be a liberal and be so narrow-minded? And yet, that's what they were. And how do you be a globalist and be narrow-minded? Uh, their whole thought process is, a, is inconsistent, and it's just wrought with confusion. And they were often in conflict with the prophets. Now, the prophets are the ones that established things, but all they followed was the law of Moses. That's all they followed first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And so when Jeremiah said something, or Isaiah, they didn't, they didn't accept that as Scripture. They said it was not Scripture. Only the first five books of the Bible are Scripture. And then, of course, under their breath, and what we can add to that. 
because they were legalists and they were very involved in ceremony. Now, <clears throat> how flexible were they as a liberal? They were in charge of the priesthood. Guess what tribe they weren't from? Levi. So what did they do? They took basically the constitution established by Moses and started reinterpreting it so that they could take other people as high priests that were not from the tribe of Levi. Caiaphas, the high priest at the time of Christ, was not from the tribe of Levi. And they could insert them there. Now, what does the book say? You know, if they want to be legalists, <laughs> you'd think they'd follow it exactly. But they don't. This are the, these are the Sadducees, and these are the people that came to the Lord. They were politically powerful. They had control over the priesthood. It says, and they questioned him, saying, Teacher, see, this is the way they frequently start, call him teacher, rabbi, Moses wrote for us. See, Moses wrote for us. If a man's brother dies having a wife, the all capital letters, here's the quotation, and he is childless, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. Now, they have accurately quoted Deuteronomy 25.5. They, they quoted that accurately. But you know, Satan could accurately quote Scripture too. He's very good at that. Matthew chapter 4 is where the, the Satan was tempting the Lord in the 40 days in the wilderness. Yeah, and Satan threw Scripture into his face. It's interesting today how sometimes you can find politicians doing the same thing, quoting Scripture to their own benefit and denying other important things. Um, Satan could also accurately quote Scripture. And it says, now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died childless. Mark 12, 20, you can see the parallel passage in there. There were seven brothers, first took a wife and died, leaving no children. Almost the same thing, doesn't change the meaning, and it just, it's a different way to say it. And it says, and the second, that's a short verse. That ranks right up there with Jesus wept as the shortest verse of the Bible, but not, not quite. And the second, that second brother died, and the third married her. And all and in the same way, all seven died, leaving no children. <laughs> they, they may have been like, uh, you just thought they'd have started running by, the, by about the third or fourth brother. Those last ones would have said, I'm going to go on a journey to a far country, but anyway. And they're the parallel passages, see? They base, say basically the same thing. Then in verse 32, finally the woman died also. Okay, Matthew 22, last of all the woman died. Mark 12, 22, last of all the woman died also. So it's saying the same thing same thing the other passages that address this now they set up a hypothetical situation and see what they're doing see the tactics that is almost beyond the realms of probability okay somewhere along the line if this would have really happened it probably wouldn't have gone through all seven it's a typical ploy of those with their own agenda to set up or exaggerate situations beyond the normal. 
So be on the alert for it. It's given us some idea of how Satan works because these people are clearly out to trip up Jesus, the Messiah. That's what, what they are there to do. So <clears throat> look out when people start to exaggerate things beyond the normal. So here's the question. In the resurrection, therefore, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Huh. Here's the passage. They're attempting to discredit the whole concept of resurrection. Remember, they're Sadducees and don't believe in a resurrection. Part of the liberal wing of theology. They're also attempting to show their great understanding of theology. Did they not quote scripture? We know what it says. They quoted it exactly. They got that one right. Okay, They quoted it exactly. But if their presupposition was correct then their question would have at least some validity. If their presupposition was correct, their question would have at least some validity. But they had assumed, that's always dangerous, that everything would be the same in the coming age. Oh, but a new age, not the Hindu new age, but in a new age, a coming age, what means that it had to be the same? So Jesus answered. He said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. Now, here's where the other passages, Mark 12, 29, and Mark, uh, Matthew 12, 29, Mark 12, 24, come to play. Jesus also tells them, Okay, whenever he answers, Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. In Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine, Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken. The word mistaken is planao. And it's a word that means to roam or to err, to be deceived like a sheep that has wandered off. Okay, that's important to know. You have erred. You have wandered off, not understanding. Oida is the word here, a knowledge from experience. The scriptures nor the power of God. He says, okay, today, the answer. Facts for today. The sons of these, this age marry and they are given in marriage. Mark 12, 24 says, Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are mistaken that you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? You don't understand either one of them. And you'll notice the way Jesus handles this. When he's given an exaggerated question, he handles it straight on. Straight on. He's able to come forth and answer it. Now, deception, when does it occur? Deception can occur when we're not paying attention. We only get a part of the, part of the discourse. We read a part of the scripture. Uh, we scan it too fast to get what is there. The deception can occur when we're not paying attention. It can also occur when we don't understand the subject, but we think we do. It can occur when we have incorrect standards of evaluation. See, here they are trying to exaggerate something and to make a standard they don't understand the underlying principle. But remember, they don't believe in angels. 
Okay? They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in the resurrection. You go back to the first thing, and they're asking a question here about the resurrection they don't believe in, so they're trying to discredit it. That's how you know that they are trying to discredit it. And deception can occur when we think we know it all. Of course, none of us have ever been that way. Or when we act like we know it all. When we're not willing to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. We think we know it all. Jesus will combat their attack by revealing some new information. Now, he's going to give them a piece of new information here, which had not been spelled out before in Scripture. Now, verse 35. But those who are considered worthy. Katakayo. Now this is kind of gets them right where they are because they view themselves as worthy. Okay? But they still don't believe in a resurrection. So what lives on forever? Your memory. That'd be how they view it. Their churches here in Oklahoma City don't believe in a resurrection. They don't believe in a resurrection, but the way that you are preserved eternally is by your memory being preserved. So if you do something really great and people remember you, then that's how you are preserved into eternity. But those who are considered worthy, that's the word katakayo. I put it in there for you. It's used th three times. A kata, when you put on the front of a word, means according to a standard. The word oxiao is a word that means worthy. It's used, uh, it, that word, other word, is used quite frequently. To attain is to kano, and the word emphasizes the arrival rather than the journey. There are some words that can translate, you can translate to go or to come, like erkomai and all this. This is the word that indicates the arrival rather than how you got there. To attain or to arrive to that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage that's his answer they don't marry they think they got him all tripped up here and he's teaching a lot of theology in just a few words worthy boy that caught them because all their worthiness is based on works see the resurrection to the kingdom does require a worthiness based on a righteous standard but the problem is the righteous standard is grace, not works. The worthiness involves the suffering. Acts 5.41, we do know that because they went out from the presence of the council, Peter and John, they'd just been taken in because they, they dared to proclaim the name of Jesus, rejoicing they'd been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. They beat him, sent him on their way. And they thought they were worthy to suffer shame. Not worthy to get into the kingdom. But that God had called them and put them in a position where they could undergo suffering for the cause of Christ. They viewed that as, as a blessing. Second Thessalonians 1.5. This is the plain indication of God's righteous judgment. So that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. Now <clears throat> the fact of the matter is. Jesus is the only one who is worthy. So attaining to the kingdom does require a worthiness, but it's not yours. It's his. You have to 
be part of him. You have to believe in him. Because you of yourselves cannot be worthy. And Jesus makes that clear. And he does it in a, in a very um, wonderful way. He's the only one who is worthy. John the Baptist or baptizer. Depending on which frame of mind you're in at any point of time. This is one of the greatest verses that you're ever going to find. John 1 27 he who comes after me the thong of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie John came telling of one who would come and he said when he comes I'm not worthy to untie his sandals that's who he is and then Jesus came walking you remember for the baptism and he said what behold the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world he knew exactly who Jesus was he was his cousin but he knew he was the Messiah and then if, if you don't have that context some will say well John said go ask him who he is while he was in jail because they kept bugging him they kept bugging him said go ask him who he is and some people say well even John got disillusioned and all that I don't believe that for a heartbeat because John knew who he was he was his cousin to begin with probably visited with him earlier and when he came walking up to be baptized he said the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world he knew who he was he knew what he was there for He's the only one who is worthy. Revelation chapter 5 teaches the same thing. You can read the whole chapter in there. Just read it and look for that part in there because it's always a great devotional. There's only one. John was looking for some, someone in heaven on earth or under the earth who is worthy to open the seals of the book. And no one was found is what it says. The only one that was found is the lamb who was found worthy. To redeem for himself a people from every tribe and nation and people and tongue. He is the only one worthy. So we must be attached to his worthiness to enter the coming age. The third point in heaven there will be no common marriages to one another among former human beings. That's what, he's, that's what Jesus just revealed to us. It's not been stated anywhere I can find in scripture before. But here Jesus says the prophet says oh, here's a new piece of information for you. Now, verse 36 says, For they, who are those resurrected, cannot even die anymore. <laughs> Not going to be any big deal in heaven about worrying whose brother's going to do what. They can't die anymore because they are like angels. Oh, <laughs> the Sadducees didn't believe in angels. <laughs> so Jesus is not afraid. To lay it out there, ice angelos is the word used here. Angelos, the word for angel. Ice is like iso, meaning I like. It's only used one time. It means the same in quality. They're not inferior to, but there's they're the same in, in quality. They're like angels and are son of God, sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Notice it doesn't say they are angels. I've heard people say that when their loved one passed, they became an angel. Wrong. Incorrect. There are different types of beings, humanity and angels. Right now, angels are above us in rank. In eternity, they will be below us in rank. First and second chapter of the book of Hebrews. Now, 
Jesus is talking about angels to those who don't believe in them. That's part of how they got deceived and wandered away from the faith. They were mentioned 33 times in the Pentateuch. So they, they should, at least, if they follow the Pentateuch, accept the fact that they're angelic beings. Truth is not decided by what a person believes, but by the divine author, which Jesus is pointing out. You can have your interpretations if you want to, but the truth standard is based on what did the author mean. Those resurrected will in no way be inferior to angels. In fact, humanity will be higher than angels. Those two chapters I just quoted. There are no marriages among angelic beings because we'll be similar to the angels. So are angels marrying and having little angels? No. Okay? Not the way, not the way God set up the angelic society. He could have, but that's not the way he chose to do it. There is one marriage in heaven. Revelation 19 the lamb to the bride the church so there is one marriage in heaven but there are not common multiple marriages among human beings in verse 37 he says but that the dead are raised even Moses showed Jesus talking to the Sadducees in the passage about the burning bush he went right back to where the Pentateuch <laughs> where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And see the parallel passages there. The Sadducees evidently believed death brought non-existence. They are part of the line of thinking that today is called secular humanism. See, they profess God, but they only honor Him with their lips. True secular humanism doesn't believe in a God, believes mankind is God. But they don't believe there's any resurrection at all. So Jesus took them to their only accepted prophet. Look at what he did. Moses. Okay, they don't accept Isaiah, Jeremiah. They could have talked about a lot of other things. David they don't ex uh, accept as a prophet. They took him to a lot of other things. Uh, he went to their only accepted prophet, namely Moses, and he quotes his words to them. See, where was Moses standing? on holy ground why he was in the presence of the I am do you think maybe they were too and didn't realize it they came after the king of kings and lord of lords trying to bring him down and they were standing on holy ground just like Moses was in verse 38 he says, now he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. But of the living, for all live to him. So to not believe in the resurrection is to not believe in God. If there's nothing after this life, God is probably a figment of people's imaginations. Or he really doesn't matter anyway. If there's no accountability. If there's no eternal accounting, there's no reason to live for anything other than oneself. Now that is the logical uh, destination of believing there's nothing after this life. In fact, it's, it's, you can prove in, in a way, 
you can offer strong evidence that every human being believes there's something after this life. They're born that way. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says God has set eternity in the hearts of men. You know, every world religion except atheism believes there's something after this life. Every one of them. Every one of those world religions, they believe that there's something that you do, you have to do to better yourself in order to come back in the next life in a better position. Reincarnation believes that. Uh, transmigration of souls, that's a good one. That's, that's the one. Uh, yes, grasshopper. Uh, the old kung fu movies that were there, you could come back as a bug. That's why some, some Buddhists don't want you squashing any bugs or earthworms or all that because they're, um, um, or spiders because they're a living thing. It could be a relative. You might know some of who that might fall into. But anyway, they, they were, um, if there is no resurrection, but all of the world religions know that. 1 Corinthians 15 says, If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That's the logical conclusion. If there's no final accounting. Do not be deceived. This is one of... What, what had happened to the Sadducees? What was the word used in there? You've been deceived and you've wandered away. You've been deceived and you've wandered away. You have a knowledge without any understanding that goes with it. And what did Paul write here in 1 Corinthians 15.33 in the chapter on the resurrection? He says, don't be deceived. Bad company. If we looked it all up, it's the word kakos, inherently evil associations corrupt good morals. You go into some type of operation, business operation, family operation, social. Why, why in 2 Corinthians 6 they say don't marry an unbeliever? Believers should not marry unbelievers. It is not a good idea to do that. Why? It's an evil association. And you might go in with all the right ideas, but it corrupts them. It tears them down. That's why if, if, if you have a conservative viewpoint of life which means basically that there is a standardized set of rules that, that God has ordained that we are called to, to follow that conservative viewpoint of life then, and then if you don't work at it you know what will happen you become a liberal which means that there is no God there is no Bible it's a natural progression of the sin nature it's where we end up if we do not fight it. Become sober-minded. These are commands inspired of the Holy Spirit written down by Paul. Become sober-minded as you ought to and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God and I speak this to your shame. He's talking to the Corinthian church. People are associating with them coming into the assembly and they still are not believers. Now if Abraham and Isaac and Jacob no longer exist, how could God still be God to them in a personal way? That's the Lord's argument, His reasoning. And some of the scribes, 
Grammatius. We get grammar from that. Grammatius is the one who uses grammar. Answered and said, Teacher, Didaskalos. Now notice the Sadducees asked the question. The scribes were right there. These are the attorneys. And the Pharisees were probably floating around. You, you're sure they're on the peripheries? Because those two guys hated each other. But yet they, and the scribes worked for both of them. But the Sadducees and Pharisees didn't like each other because the Pharisees believed in a resurrection. The Sadducees did not. The Pharisees believed in the full Old Testament. Sadducees did not. They had significant theological differences, but they united. Have you ever thought about that? You know, we have a message now. We just need to unite. We do not need to unite around evil because evil is good at uniting around itself. We need to unite around the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where the unity needs to come from. And he says, Teacher, Didaskalos, you have spoken well. Kalos. <laughs> you ever hear people on the TV? I know none of you watch any news media at all. And you hear somebody ask a question or make a statement, and another one says, You're exactly right. That drives me nuts. <laughs> who are you what they're saying is you agree with me and I agree with you but the proclamation of right comes from the almighty <laughs> for me to say you're exactly does that line up with God's word should be the first test question that's there the scribes are the attorneys the real defenders of the law in the time of Jesus they were often called rabbi teacher father or lord they went by a, a number of different titles. The scribes are usually Pharisees who argued incessantly in the Sadducees with the Sadducees over law and theology. And this scribe gives Jesus an attaboy. Uh, you're exactly right. Well, who are you, O scribe, <laughs> to put your stamp of approval on the Almighty? Now, is the Lord patient? kind, slow to anger, <laughs> showing loving kindness. These are, his, these are his countrymen here doing this. Exactly. <laughs> he says, he gives him an attaboy for answering the Sadducees. Why is it an attaboy? It's because I agree with what you said. <laughs> I believe there is a resurrection. That's why he said basically the amen to it. And then verse 40, for they this is the Sadducees, did not have courage to question him any longer about anything. Okay? Now Matthew twenty-two thirty-three 33, parallel passage, when the crowds heard this. So if there wasn't a crowd to begin with, there was a crowd by the time they got done. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. He shut the, Pharise the Sadducees up, didn't he? He shouted, they did not, they had no courage to question him any longer about anything. Now, the common people often listen to those who seem to win the arguments. Sadly, that's the way they, they did. Jesus shut another set of mouths for a time. Seemed like I read somewhere that every mouth shall be shut. Every mouth shall be shut. 
What's the next part in the chronology of Jesus' conversation? The greatest commandment. And the next group of people are the Pharisees. They hadn't given up yet. They're still trying to trip him up. They're still find, trying to find fault with something that Jesus said. And you'll notice that, that uh, one form of evil frequently hands off to another form of evil. That's what they did. You can, find, you can learn a lot about the tactics of the evil one just by going through the Gospels. You see how they work, how they try to manipulate, how they twist Scripture, how they throw Scripture in your face, and all that, and they don't understand what they are even talking about. Now, that should better prepare us for the things that we hear today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and grace. Thank you again for this portion of your word. Father, it is always exciting to go through your word and study it once again and father we thank you so much for the principles that just jump out at us and tell us to watch out and tell us to be ready and tell us to stand firm because the forces of evil never sleep they hand off from one to the other they don't play fair and they don't care father give us the courage to be able to Learn your word and to stand firm when faced with all this adversity. And we will give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.